Today we're going to be discussing the ethical implications of how we treat one another as human beings. These are pressing questions, particularly at a time when medical costs are rising and increasing numbers of people are in need of services. How do we decide who gets treated and who does not? Who makes the decisions and what are the standards we follow? This is nothing less than the question of life and death for each one of us. was the SOD surgeon of the day and the nurse said doc we got a very badly injured guy out here he better come out right away so I went out and took a look at him and he was lying in a stretcher and he was really uh, badly injured and uh, I talked to him and he said well I think I left my legs in the helicopter doc you might just as well have left them in the helicopter because they're no good he needed to have both lower extremities amputated he needed as we found out from radiograms, the, what had gone in here was now inside his skull, so in his, in his frontal lobe. So he needed a craniectomy and debridement of his brain, and he needed to have this eye taken out. And did he have, so he needed the urologist, he needed, we needed the neurosurgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, myself, and we went to work. Well, after we'd finished, the chief of professional services, a lieutenant colonel, um, when he put his arm around me and said, well, I think you should know that the boys think maybe you should have let that fellow go last night. I was sort of, you know, oh my God, I never even thought of that. At the foundation of our thinking about ethics is the basic principle that every human being possesses a profound, inherent, and equal dignity and a right to life. How do we adapt the concept that all life is precious and all human beings are equal before God in this new world? Either we are going to stick at the basis of our ethics and at the base of our medicine with the proposition that every human being has profound, inherent, and equal dignity, or we're going to abandon that in favor of the view that was once associated with the movement known as eugenics. The eugenics movement did not go away. Um, it, it really changed how it expressed itself. When we engage in something like that, we have already subscribed to utilitarian calculus that says it's okay to let us use genetic information to determine whether some people can exist for the use of others or don't have the right to exist at all. Are we willing to sacrifice the lives of some human beings for the sake of others? And that means are we willing to give up the sanctity of human life ethic in favor of an ethics of eugenics? A proper understanding of who the human person is and what the person is in relationship to, to others and to society, if we lose that and we are losing that, it becomes very, very dangerous, especially for certain groups, the unborn, the elderly, I think this discussion is the most important one you can engage in in ethics today. Unfortunately, a lot of people put slogans and catchphrases like pro-life, pro-choice. It's much deeper than that. The question is, 
What does it mean to be human? We can talk about virtue and make it an academic exercise. We can apply it to our own lives and our own spheres. We can become leaders, and that is needed. But the issues we're going to talk about now are going to affect every one of us sooner or later. Imagine you're in Washington State or Oregon. You go to the nursing home to see your mother or your grandmother, and she's not there, and you ask the nurse, what's happened to my mom? Oh, didn't they tell you? The doctor helped her kill herself last night. See, in those states, you don't even have to inform the family if a person wants to do it. Or you could be Mark and Mary, we'll call them. Mark's a medical school professor. I was talking to him, and he said, let me tell you our story. We had difficulty having children. We went through a whole infertility workup. It ended up we needed in vitro fertilization. They gave my wife hormonal stimulation. She had 12 embryos. They were fertilized. Three were implanted. We were thrilled. (laughs) First attempt, only about a 30% chance of success, she got pregnant. We had a beautiful little girl. Three months later, she got pregnant the old-fashioned way, a big surprise to us, with triplets. After the parents moved in to help take care of the children, she was using contraception. She got pregnant again three months later. We had five girls under the age of two. He says, you know what that means for college and weddings and... And we had nine children in the freezer. See, these are ethical issues that come down to very practical issues that are going to affect us all. And the question we need to ask is this. What does it mean to be human? It means that we are made in God's image. That's what it means. I heard that all my life, and I'm sure you've heard it as well. Well, what does that really mean? How does that come across to each one of us? The image of God is an essence, a nature that we possess. It's something that we are endowed with, as, as it says. And God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. God gave us dominion over creation because we are made in his image. Uh, we're not animals. That's what the world tries to tell us. We're just higher primates. But God gave man dominion over everything and demonstrated our moral worth because of that and gave us a stewardship responsibility for his creation. He was very clear when he said, let's make man our image and our likeness, let them rule over all the creatures. Because we are made in his image, we can know there is a God. Animals can't know that. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. I I worked in Africa as a medical missionary for 11 years and spent a lot of time taking visitors out to the plains to see the beautiful animals. And all those trips, I never saw the animals creating a totem and worshiping it. They, They have no ability to do that. And yet you can go anywhere in the world and you will find men and women worshiping something. Even an atheist worships themselves. 
Because inside we have this sense that there's something higher than us. God's image means that we can fellowship with God. We can fellowship with God. Uh, It said very clearly that the Lord God was walking in the garden. He fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. And then as you go and, and read soon after the fall, he instituted a fellowship offering, a sacrifice to restore fellowship between men and God because he desired that and he knew men needed that. The New Testament talks about our fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ, with God the Father. We can fellowship with God. God's image means we have a conscience. Yes, it can be seared. We can get to the point where it's not formed very well. But innately, God created in us a sense of right and wrong. And even those with a seared conscience realize some things they shouldn't do. It's very clear. And to a lesser degree, we have God-like capacities. We are, have many of the attributes of God to a lesser degree. We have self-awareness and consciousness. We, we know we exist because the Bible tells us, God says, I am. He, he is the great I am, and he gives us that ability. He gives us rationality. The reason we have science, the reason it developed in Western civilization, is because we were not animistic. We, we realized God had created an ordered world. It was rational. We could understand it, and we could reason and deduct. We have the ability to love and be loved. Why? Because God is love. Because of his image dwelling within us. We have the ability to communicate. In the beginning was the word. God communicated with us and we have a high level of communication ability. As the scripture says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. So because we're made in God's image, being human means that we are persons from the earliest point of development. Let's move from the the biblical side and begin to move into how do you deal with this and defend it in the public arena where Scripture is not accepted nor the Bible's authority. Well, first of all, there's a continuity of development. The Bible teaches us that. David said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We mature and develop into what we already are, persons. We get greater capabilities. We are not potential persons. We are persons with potential. This is where there has been this huge philosophical divide that we're going to talk about in separating the fact of being a human being from being a person. Sure, That embryo is a human being, but it's not a person. Therefore, it doesn't have the same rights that I have. Therefore, I can do with it what I want to. God created us and knew us from the earliest moment of conception. When that sperm entered that egg, a new moral entity was created. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, 13 through 16, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know them full well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in one of your books before I became to be. 
that if you go back to the Hebrew, that unformed substance in lexicon is actually the same word they use for the embryo, the beginning of life. Uh, let's, let's put that into secular words. We talk about ontological identity, the, the whole concept that, that, uh, that you are you. When, I, when I'm doing media and talking about this, I'll say it in a very simple way. You were you when you were an embryo. No one else would have become you. If somebody had sacrificed you for your valuable biological parts for embryonic stem cell research, you would have ceased to exist. Now, you don't have all the capabilities at that point that you have now, but you were perfectly formed for that stage of development. A few years ago, there was a man that was captured in France. He had actually murdered his girlfriend in the United States 25, 30 years before, chopped her up and put her in a trunk in the closet. They finally found him in a small French village, brought him back for justice. How good do you think the defense would have been if the lawyer had stand up and said, I'm, you know, this isn't the same person anymore? See, he looks French, he dresses French, he speaks French very well. He has a lot of capabilities now that he didn't have back then. He's not the same person. They would have laughed, wouldn't they? You know, a human being cannot have inestimable worth as an adult and no or little worth as an embryo. You can't all of a sudden say, wow, now at this point. In fact, one of my friends was in an OBGYN conference and they were showing pictures of embryos at different stages and fetuses and saying, is this a human? Is this a human? And he raised his hand, OBGYN doctor, said, excuse me, start with a, a baby and work your way back, around, back and tell me when they stop being a person. Personhood is based on each individual's inherent rights and our Declaration of Independence teaches this very clearly. It says, all men are created equal and enhanced by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Endowed, inherent, those means that those are inseparately bound from you. No Congress, no court, no president, no king can strip those away. You can forfeit your right to liberty, if you and I go out and rob a bank when we finish our time here this morning, we could forfeit that liberty. If we kill someone, we could forfeit our life. But no one can take it away from us. It is bound to us. But see, those in the secular world say, no, no, there's a utilitarian personhood. Your capacity equals your rights. It's your ability to do things that that establishes whether the Constitution protects you. It's your, you know, please wait here until you're useful type of approach. It's your rational attributes. It's your self-awareness. It's your ability to reason. It's your interaction with the environment. It's your consciousness, ability to feel pain, to have pleasure, to have emotional response. This is what makes you a person. And if you take this to the logical conclusion, is a newborn baby a person? Not really. In fact, that's what Peter Singer says. A weak old baby is not a rational or self-conscious being. There are many non-human animals whose rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity to feel pain, and so on exceed that of a human baby a week, a month, or even a year old. 
If the fetus does not have the same claim to life as a person, it appears the newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Ideas have consequences. In fact, a scholar at the Hastings Institute, Richard Frey, advocates that the mentally ill really aren't persons either because they lack some of these attributes. So we use them for scientific experiments. Oh, we could learn so much. So let's get practical. If personhood is not based on external factors, how's that transfer into the things that we hear about every day? The debates that rage across our country, embryonic stem cell research, the ongoing abortion bait, physician-assisted suicide. Let's, let's just focus down on the embryo and the fetus. And here's some of the things that you'll hear. Um, well, until that embryo is implanted, it's really not a person. Arlen Specter said that on the Senate floor in the embryonic stem cell debate. I'm, I'm pro-life, but unless there's hormonal connections between the mother and the child, that embryo is really not a person. The easiest and quickest way to answer that is, then what happens when we have an artificial womb? Because we're working on that. Pretty soon we'll be able to take an embryo and put it in an artificial womb and it can be born without even being in contact with its mother. I'll hear this argument. Well, what about embryo wastage, Dr. Stevens? You know, 50% of embryos that, that are fertilized, uh, they, they don't survive. That's just nature. So how can you say it as a person? I did medical relief work in Somalia in the midst of famine, war. 50% of the children in the city at one point were dying. Does that mean there were no children in the city? Does survival rate determine personhood? Others would say, no, 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 no. It's, it's twinning. I was on tech TV and a guy looked at me and said, you know, that embryo can split, become an identical twin. How can you say it's a person when it can become two persons? How would you answer that one? I looked at him and smiled and I said, if the fact is that you can take one person and turn them into two persons, takes away their personhood, then what happens when I can clone you? See, when you speak in the public forum, what you use is analogies, stories, illustrations. That's how Christ taught. That's how he worked with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the authorities of his day. That's how he taught. We need to develop that same ability. Others would say, no, no, Dr. Stevens, don't you in the hospital, when you decide someone is brain dead, you can take off the respirator, trans, take their organs and for transplant? <coughs> Uh, the embryo, the fetus, up till, oh, I don't know, 45 days after fertilization, has no detectable brainwave. So how can you call that a person? How would you answer that one? Well, brainwave activity is not a marker for personhood like it is a marker for death. See, the difference between that patient in the hospital that has no brainwaves is they have no future. I can guarantee you they're not going to walk out of the hospital. But that embryo, that fetus, even though it may not have brain waves, has all the potential of developing and becoming what God has designed them to be. Others would say, no, no, it's pain sensation. You know, the ability to feel pain makes you a person. 
Well, let's say you walk up to me after we finish and you say, uh, Dr. Stevens, I don't know, that coffee this morning just didn't settle. I got this pain down here, you know, what they told you not to do. We're doing a little, you know, sidewalk consult here. And, uh, you know, being a good doctor that I am, I just lay you out on the floor, examine you. You have appendicitis. It's classical. And, you know, as a brother and sister, I, I don't want to take good care of you. So I take you down to the hospital. And, you know, I used to be a missionary doctor. I I've done a lot of this stuff, so I'll give you the anesthesia, and then I'll do the surgery, and we'll have a word of prayer before I do it. But you know, after I get the anesthesia in place, I never really liked you very much. (laughs) So I just turn the anesthesia up and knock you off. Have I harmed you? You didn't feel a thing. In fact, you went to sleep just so happy that I was there. See, that confuses the whole issue of the sensation of harm with the reality of harm. I've taken away your future, your life, your relationships. The fact that you didn't fill it doesn't make any difference. Others would say, oh, it's viability. That's what the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade insinuated. It's, it's a matter of viability. But viability is not dependent on what we're dealing with. It's dependent on our technology. When I went through residency, we could keep... Premature is alive at 28 weeks. Now it's 22 weeks. We get an artificial womb. It might be any time. It has nothing to do with what we're dealing with. And others say, no, no, it's birth. Well, personhood does not depend on location or dependency. In fact, if you ask a mother when the baby seems to be more dependent on her, it's the morning after the born, when she's getting up at night and making bottles and changing diapers We know that there is huge worth, whatever the status of development. That's what it means to be human. There's a sanctity of human life. And we know we must have an obligation to protect it. Then how do we respond to some of these present and future technologies? Let's talk about a few of them, just very briefly. Go to the front page of Time magazine, the cover, and you'll see issue after issue over the years that now are things we're debating and many of them doing in our society. Uh, embryonic stem cells, a huge debate a few years ago. And, and under, the, under these arguments are a, is a radical pragmatism in embryonic stem cell research. Let's, it's okay to do a little bad so something really good could happen kind of a utilitarian ethic. Let's just weigh that on the scale. Oh yeah, if we could cure it, you know. So all these promises were, were made that we were going to have spectacular cures. Parkinson's disease was going to be cured. And, and all of a sudden we drove a wedge, put a hole in the ethical dam to say, okay, if good enough good, let's let it happen. And now we bear the consequences of that. A practice that first of all is immoral. It's wrong to destroy one human being for the benefit of the other because of human dignity. It's impractical. We found that out. Where are the cures? I go around and speak on this topic and people say, yeah, I thought I was going to get my cure in a year or two for my chronic disease. Where are the cures? And we found out there are much better ways to get to the things we want to do through embryonic stem cell research rather than kill embryos. And it's, it's unnecessary. We have better possibilities. Physician-assisted suicide. This is something that's coming to you. In fact, I think this year it's going to be introduced in over 20 states across the country. 
to legalize it. The battle's raging again in Vermont. It's raging in Hawaii. California's going to bring it up again. It's the whole concept that there are certain lives not worthy to be lived. And therefore, we need to do the humane thing. When I was in Africa, I took care of a lot of really sick people. And one of them, I remember in particular, was a young girl, 13 years of age. She came to the hospital. I saw her in outpatients. She was salivating, having difficulty swallowing. She was fearful. She seemed frantic, uh, agitated. We'd never seen a case of it at the hospital before, but after taking a close look at her, I realized she had rabies. History was she'd been bitten by a dog about six weeks before. Now, some people would look and say the humane thing would have been just to get this over with. Why make her family suffer? Why, why would she have to go through this? This was going to disturb the whole hospital and other patients because she had a 100% chance of dying. And, of course, we want to make her comfortable and give sedation, but why not just push that syringe all the way in? Wouldn't that be a humane act, a mercy act? See, physician-assisted suicide destroys the foundation of medicine. You know what the foundation of medicine is? It's trust. When one of you ladies comes to see me, you'll tell me the most intimate things of your life and then take off your clothes and let me examine you. Why? Because you trust me as a physician. You know that I'm not going to betray your confidence. I'm not going to take sexual advantage of you. You know that, that I'm going to do what's good for you and not harm you. But if I can kill you, if I can give you a lethal prescription, you really can't trust me anymore. See, doctors used to do this before Hippocrates. You think you're scared to go to the doctor now. You should have seen what it was back then because if somebody just paid him a little bit more, he'd knock you off with the powerful knowledge that he had. And nobody was the wiser. And the foundation of medicine is trust. As Margaret Mead said, you soon may not know the doctor coming towards your bed is coming to cure you or to kill you. Especially in a system with financial problems. The things we're dealing with, the most dangerous place in America could be in the hospital bed. It's a sobering thing. We have great pain control. It's unnecessary. it's, It's dangerous for people. There's all sorts of reasons we shouldn't do it, but we are going to be fighting this battle until we have a virtuous voice speaking out, saying no. We're going to be providing comfort care. In fact, when I speak to churches, I say we need to go beyond our church doors, taking care of those in our church that's sick, to go into the community to care for the dying. There's our witness. The whole issue of eugenics. Perfecting the human race. Used to, it was in concentration camps in Germany. Now it's in operating rooms and laboratories. You can get your pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. You have something in your family you really don't want to be there. We'll screen all your embryos before we implant them, and the ones that don't measure up, we'll destroy. New test just last week. You may have caught it in the news Formerly, to diagnose Down syndrome, you had to do amniocentesis, stick a needle into the uterus and draw off some of the fluid. There's some danger, there's some risk involved in that. If the child is healthy, you still can have a 2 to 3% spontaneous miscarriage rate. Well, they've solved that problem. Now you can just do a blood test. And they can diagnose whether you have a Down syndrome baby. And what it's come into is what? A search and destroy mission. 
That's why you don't see many down kids walking down the street anymore, because most of them have been aborted. This whole idea that we can perfect it through genetic technology, through cloning, we can take the best of the best and make them, copy them, and populate our world. Uh, genetics, genetic enhancement. You know, we have addition, uh, issues of abortion, physician-assisted suicide. Those are nice kind of yes, right, and wrong. But we're moving into a gray zone. You want your children to do well, don't you? That's why you send them to a good school. Well, what if we could just tweak a little gene here and make them smarter, make them stronger? Wouldn't you like to have a son that played in the NBA? Well, we just created a Schwarzenegger mouse up in Pennsylvania and just manipulated a couple genes, and this mouse is five times stronger and faster than any other mouse alive. How would you like that for your child? That'll just be $30,000. Wouldn't it be a good investment? It's a competitive word out there. You've got to give them the advantage. I'll talk to medical students. <laughs> medical students, you know, are studying awful hard. New nanotechnology, they're talking about making a supercomputer the size of a cube of sugar. If I could implant that in your head, I'll say to a medical student, give you all medical knowledge, and every night while you sleep it's updated, would you take it? They've had enough sleepless nights, it's very tempting. These are the issues that we face and that we're dealing with. Let's finish with this. Remember this, God himself became an embryo. You know, Christ could have come on earth at the age of 30, had his three years of ministry, died on the cross, but instead he sanctified every stage of human development. He experienced it all. I can't understand it. I mean, how could the God of the universe become a one human cell? The God who flung the planets and the stars into space, but he loved us and identified with us and experienced everything that we've ever experienced and sanctified human life. We need to do the same and be voices of righteousness into our culture. The couple that I mentioned at the beginning, the doctor and his wife, they prayed and thought, should we put our, we aren't going to destroy our children in the freezer. Maybe we should put them up for adoption. They prayed and instead they went back and she went through three implantations of three embryos each, realizing they could have 14 kids. And she didn't get pregnant again. But she did the right thing. God bless you.